So we are continuing in our series on Ephesians, and um, we're in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. And um, you've already, those of you in life groups, have already done your homework on this. And um, JD had some great insights, and there was some good discussion, I'm sure, in your groups. And this is kind of a, a bad news, good news kind of set of verses. Um, after Ephesians chapter 1, where Paul has been so encouraging with the plan of God and the works of Christ and the guarantee of the Spirit and that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened and that we would see the power that we have in Christ Jesus and that we are seated with Him at the right hand of God and that we are not under Jesus' feet but that we are His body and He is the head of the church. All of that great news in, in, uh, in chapter 2 of Ephesians, which of course there aren't chapter breaks in the original letter, but in chapter 2 as we get to these paragraphs... Um, Paul now, after that great encouraging introduction, um, kind of tells the bad news, good news scenario of what's going on in the world and what's going on in our life. And so uh, we can't avoid this. Paul is praying in that prayer in Ephesians 1 that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened and opened and be able to see. And, and this next paragraph is really about eye-opening. It's about taking the veil off. It's about not pretending that everything is okay. It's taking off the rose-colored glasses. It's looking at the world, looking at ourselves, and looking at Christ as exactly how they are. So I just want you to think about that. As Paul has just prayed about opening the eyes of our heart, he now goes into this paragraph that basically says, this is exactly how things are. Let's face reality. And then we'll finish on some encouragement as well because Paul never leaves us without encouragement. But the reality that we're going to deal with this morning is actually um, a, a key doctrine uh, in the Reformed faith called total depravity, which sounds bad, total depravity, right? And it is bad, uh, but we're going to find out why there's good news even within total depravity. So let's, uh, let me just open in a word of prayer, and then we're going to see how Paul just says, with our eyes of our heart opened and enlightened, let's see how things are. Let's pray. Father God, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these uh, words from your Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, uh, to lift the veil, to reveal the mystery, to show us what is true about the world and about ourselves. Uh, and only as we have a true diagnosis um, can we then begin to get better. And so, Father, I pray that by your Holy Spirit that uh, you would be working on our hearts, that we would have a true diagnosis of even our own hearts before we go into communion with you, and uh, that that would allow you to operate and to set things right uh, once we know what's wrong. Let's pray, pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So opening in Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 10, I'm just going to do the first three verses to start with, the, the bad news. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. There's the bad news. <laughs> Paul says, eyes open, this is the reality of the world that you live in and the world that you are. And I just want to touch briefly on the way in which Paul describes the forces that are at work in us and forces that are at work on us that make us dead. He says we are dead in our sin, which we're going to get to in a moment. And then he says in this death in our sin, there are three forces at work or three powers that make us dead and keep us dead. 
And he kind of touches on each one of them. The first one is the world. He says, We were dead in our trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world. And so Paul is saying that if you're not following God, then you're following the world. And Paul says to these Ephesians, when you were not following God, you were following the trends of your city. Whatever was happening in the city of Ephesus or whatever was happening in the country of uh, Asia Minor there, what your friends were doing, you thought it was good to do. Whatever your particular tribe agreed with, you just jumped on the bandwagon with them. Right? Do you understand what he's saying here? He's saying you followed the world. You know, Ford or Chevy, you just jumped on the bandwagon, right? Leafs or senators, you just jumped on the bandwagon and you followed whatever those going on in the world, right? You know, paleo diet, keto diet, gun control, environmentalism, right? Open borders, immigration control, welfare, tax cuts, pro-life, pro-choice, you know, Beyonce or some other one, I don't know. But, you know, people just... You just followed the world, right? Like, just think about it. It's so easy. This is a force at work with us, and we just pile on a bandwagon, and we follow the world. And we say, I want to think like they do, or I want to be like that person, or I want to be associated with them. And so I'm a Leafs fan, or I'm a Sens fan, or I'm on this diet, or I'm on that diet, or I'm for guns, or I'm against guns, or I'm, you know, whatever it is, whatever the issue is, the, the world is... You have to follow something, and if you're not following God, then you're following the world. It doesn't matter. You find yourself following something, and if it's not God, it will be the world. That's the first thing, is that the world is out there, and people are chasing after things in the world. They're associating themselves with certain tribes, and they follow after those things, and they, and they make them their identity. But then Paul goes on. He says, not just the world is a force on you, but there's also literally a spiritual force, the devil. We have an enemy who he calls here the prince of the power of the air. And he says the world is under the influence of this devil. He's under the, the world is under the influence of this prince of the power of the air. And we're not going to get distracted why he's called that here. But meaning that if we're not with God, then there's a spiritual power at work in us, which is a power of disobedience or rebellion. And so we're following the world, but the world is under the influence of the devil, and so if you're not following God, deliberately following God, then you will invariably be following the devil and influenced by him. And then thirdly, Paul says that there is our own flesh. So there's the world, there's the devil, and there's the flesh. The passions of our flesh, he says. The desires of our heart, the lusts, the King James Version says. We want to eat, what then we eat. If we want this or that, then we find a way to get it. If we want to do this activity or that activity, then we do it, or we find a way to do it. And when we fulfill a desire, we get a good feeling in ourselves. And so we almost get convinced that doing whatever we desire is a good thing, because if I want chocolate and I eat chocolate, I get this nice dopamine hit, and I feel good that my desire was fulfilled. Right? If I want to watch a, an exciting movie like The Avengers and I go and I watch this exciting movie, it was fun to do it. I fulfilled a pleasure and I got this good feeling and so fulfilling the desire is good. And so we start to get driven by our desires that if there's a desire for something, then fulfilling it must be good. And, and we create moral equivalency between getting what we want or feel at the moment and good, goodness. But it's not like that. Paul says here, with with your eyes open, and we know it if we just stop to think about it a little bit, that not every desire is good. We can desire something that is not good for us, even though it might make us feel good to get it. 
But what happens is if you're not following God, if you don't have the eyes of your heart enlightened, if you're following after the world, if you're influenced by the spirit of the devil, then what happens is that then you start to think, well, I want that woman and she wants me. And so we will have each other regardless of our spouses, right? Or I want that promotion. And so I'll feel good if I get that promotion. So I'm going to talk trash about my coworkers behind their back so that I get that promotion, right? And we start to have this equivalency that, you know, the ends justify the means. As long as I feel good and I pursue my pleasure, then it's a good thing for me. And we know how that ends. So Paul says, these things are at work in us and that these three forces are the reality of how the world, and as you look around the world, it operates, right? I want, that, I want a better car, so I get a better car, right? And that quickly escalates to, we as a country need oil to put in the cars that we want, and so we're going to go to war against that country that has oil so that we can keep our oil supply running, right? The desires of humanity drive conflict. And if we simply pursue our flesh and our fleshly desires, it gets us into depravity. And obviously there's a thousand smaller steps that lay between our desire to drive a car and a nation going to war in the Middle East to secure oil supply. There's there's thousands of steps in between there. But you know what all those steps are? They're people pursuing their desire. I I want this for me. I want this for my family. I want this for my nation. I I have to have this. I've I've grown accustomed to this. It has to keep happening. And so we take all these little steps to fulfill our desires and the lusts of our flesh so that we're satisfied. And Paul says that ends in disaster. And he says... That's what you were, Ephesians. That's what you were, Christians. Before you were following God, you were following either the world, the flesh, or the devil, and actually all three of them. And the doctrine in view here that Paul is bringing in the bad news is the doctrine of total depravity. Total depravity is the biblical doctrine. And the word doctrine is just a fancy word for a set of beliefs or things that we hold to be true. And that And and the interesting thing here about biblical doctrines is that when we rephrase them or summarize what the Bible says as a doctrine, people can become suspicious about it. And so even as I say the words total depravity, you know, different people having heard different things about that doctrine or the schools of thought or theology where that doctrine came from begin to have various levels of suspicion about it just because we've rephrased a biblical truth into just a a common phrase or a human phrase that lets us bundle it together. It's similar to the word Trinity. If I say the word Trinity, some people say, well, the word Trinity isn't in the Bible anywhere, and so that's not a biblical concept, and so you can't talk about the Trinity because the Bible doesn't say Trinity. Well, it's true, the Bible doesn't actually say the word Trinity, but all through Scripture we see it teaching the reality of the Trinity. And total depravity is like that. In the Bible it doesn't actually use the phrase total depravity, um, but... Total depravity is a a doctrine that is expressed in verses like these. That without God, we are dead in our sins. That we have no capacity in ourselves to save ourselves. It's a doctrine most closely associated with the Reformation and specifically with John Calvin. And so there's a lot of people, if they don't like Calvin's theology, then it's easy for them to be suspicious of the idea of total depravity. But in truth... This, this reality of total depravity or this concept, this doctrine, this the, theology has been part of the church far longer than Calvin. Calvin was born in 1509 and he's sort of one of the pioneers of the Reformation that came after Luther, but is found in the teachings of St. Augustine as he argued against Pelagius. And of course, we see in Scripture itself the source of this doctrine. But there's been a lot of debate about what total depravity means. And so this morning, what I want to do is just, is just talk about this idea of total depravity. I just want to be careful that 
we have a right view of biblical truth and that we have a right view of God and we have a right view of ourselves. Because this doctrine is sensitive. There are ways that you can teach this doctrine wrong and there are ways that you can teach this doctrine um, correctly. And we have to be careful that we don't preach more than is in Scripture, nor do we preach any less. And, and this doctrine of total depravity can fall into error on either side of the road, so to speak. You can say too much about doctrine, or you can say too little. And so we have to be careful that we don't do that. So today, in understanding our text, we just want to take some time to consider what total depravity is and what it isn't. And after considering, considering that, we'll look at what God has done about it. So the first thing is, is what total depravity is. The key word that many get hung up on in the doctrine of total depravity is the first one, which is total. We understand depravity. We understand the second word, meaning sinful, selfish, broken, corrupt, or something along those lines. And we accept that everyone, including ourselves, isn't perfect, right? Everybody acknowledges that we're not perfect. And we accept that. We all have some depravity in us. Most of us are willing to accept that reality. That, and depravity just seems like a strong word. But it isn't total, right? We're not all burning and pillaging and rioting and looting. And so when this concept of total depravity comes up, people hesitate and they reject it and they say, wait a minute, Paul, come on. You know, we're not totally depraved, you know, like the town's not on fire. You know, like we're not, we're not killing each other in the streets or anything like that. And so we get hung up on this idea of what total means in total depravity. But the first thing to understand in total depravity is that the total simply means every part of us has the effects of the corruption of sin. That's what total means. It doesn't mean you're totally depraved. It means that all parts of us are corrupted in some way. That's the totality of it. There is no aspect of our nature that is in not some part corrupted by sin. And if it helps us, we can use a different term for total depravity, like radical corruption or complete inability. You know, radical corruption is accurate as well in the sense that we are corrupt at the root of our nature and sin has radically corrupted us in every part, leaving nothing untouched. But knowing what total means, I think total depravity is a good historical term to continue to use. And so we want to talk about what total depravity is in two other ways. So it's total in the sense that all aspects of our nature are somehow corrupted in sin, but secondly, it's total in the sense that it is total rebellion. The result of depravity in every aspect of ourselves is that we cannot delight in the holiness of God. We will not submit to the authority of God. Every part of us by nature rejects God. And if we look around the world and we look into our own hearts, we see a steady resistance and even hostility towards the idea of God. Certainly a sovereign God like ours. And again, this doesn't mean that everyone all the time is actively shaking their fist at God, but it means that by nature we follow, as Paul says here, the desires of our flesh, the spirit of the world, and often even unknowingly we follow the devil. And so total depravity means that we are always in rebellion against God until the Holy Spirit comes and renews us and regenerates us and quickens us, as the King James says, so that we can know who God is and respond to God. But what Paul is saying here is the bad news is you are dead in your sin and you follow these three worlds, these, these three powers in the world, and you are in total rebellion. Scripture says elsewhere that no one pleases God, not anyone. No one seeks after God in Romans. Secondly, it's total in the sense that we are totally unable to do spiritual good. Romans 8, 7 to 8 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. 
And Ephesians 2.1 says that we Christians were all once dead in our trespasses and sin. And the point of deadness is that we are incapable of any life with God. That's what it means to be dead. If you're dead, you cannot act. If you're dead, you cannot take action. If you're, you're dead, you cannot make any effort of your own. And so the point of deadness is that we are incapable of any life with God. Our, our hearts are like a stone towards God, Ephesians 4.18 says, and Ezekiel 36.26 says. Our hearts were blind and incapable of seeing the glory of God in Christ, it says in 2 Corinthians 4. We're basically totally unable to reform ourselves. And so in this sense, this doctrine, this truth, this reality of of total depravity. It's total in the sense that it affects every aspect of our, of our nature. It, it results in total rebellion. Nobody goes for God or seeks after God on their own, and we're totally unable to do spiritual good. That's what total of total depravity means. But I think it's important that we don't fall off the road on the other side, that we also talk about what total depravity isn't, because we want to have a clear and biblical view of what it is teaching. Total depravity is not that we are completely or thoroughly depraved and incapable of any human moral good. And this is what confuses some people when they hear that the Bible teaches that we are bad, that we are sinful, that there is nothing in us that can seek after God. They think that the Bible teaches that we can do do no good work at all, and then they see non-believers or people of other faiths doing good works or sacrificing themselves for others, and it's confusing. And they say, but... But, but people do do good things. Like, like, I do do good works, and I see people, I see Doctors Without Borders and, you know, Amnesty International and, you know, all these different people that are, that are doing good things, and they're not all Christians. But the doctrine of total depravity, again, is not to teach that we are incapable of good works, but that even our good works have some corruption of self-reliance and self-serving in them. It's kind of funny. Lindsay's little tongue-in-cheek joke this morning is actually perfect. You know, because she's up here and she's saying, you know, when you see those people next week, you know, let them know that we were here, right? It was so good of us to come to church and and do this stuff, you know, and obviously she's joking. But at the heart of it, that is total depravity, right? It's like, oh, yeah, look at me helping these people. You know, look at me showing up at church. I'm in a small group. I read my, let me quote my, my, you know, my discipleship verse this morning as I was doing my devotions. There is no good that we do, the Bible teaches, not that we never do any good, But there's no good that we do that does not have in it the seed of self-reliance. In other words, I'm doing this on my own. It's my power and my ability. Or a seed of selfishness. Look at me, right? Look at how great I am. As Jesus said to the Pharisees when they were praying in the streets and blowing trumpets, they have their reward in full. You know, the adulation of men is all they're going to get. Heaven is going to be very empty for them, right? But that's the reality of... What total depravity isn't. It's not saying that people can't do good things. It's that even the good that they do has a seed of corruption in it. Any moralism, and think about it this way, any moralism that is based around good works is a religion, even if it's agnostic humanism. Right? So Doctors Without Borders going to help people in other countries, they might not think they're serving a religion, but they are doing moral good works for whatever motive they have to do those good works, for their own self-esteem, for the benefit of humanity, uh, for whatever they think is the most selfless reason they have. But by doing good works and equating it to morality is itself religion, even a non-declared religion like humanism. And it's one of the chief ways that a person conceals their unwillingness to forsake self-reliance and put all their hope on the unmerited mercy of God. 
People will do anything rather than admit that they are morally bankrupt and hopeless and must depend entirely on God. They will say, no, I can do good. And they will spend their whole life trying hard to work out their own little meism religion of doing good so that they do not have to admit that they are not self-reliant, but they must rely on God. They must rely on His mercy. So people can do good and still be totally depraved or completely incapable of saving themselves. The second truth about moral depravity, what moral depravity or total depravity means and what it isn't is important. And this is really important that we get right as a church. And I think it's been preached wrong many times before. Total depravity isn't that we are valueless or worthless. And some people read into, and I would say far worse preach, that the truth of total depravity is that we are therefore then worthless people. That we are valueless. That we should feel horrible about ourselves. That we are disgusting creatures that no one could or should ever love because we're totally depraved. And they build into this idea of total depravity, this idea of worthlessness. But it is never what the Bible teaches when it talks about our helplessness in the condition that we're in. It is not that we are worthless, but that we are powerless. In fact, the doctrine of total depravity is used repeatedly to emphasize God's affection towards us despite our hostility towards God and our moral helplessness. God loves each and every one of us. And the doctrine or the truth of total depravity, as the Bible teaches it, should never be used or never understood that its purpose is to tell us that we're worthless. Just listen to how often the Bible tells us God's love for us regardless of our helplessness. He says, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. Or in Romans, he says, But God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Or in 1 John, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. Or Jeremiah, The Lord appeared to us in the past, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. Or in Isaiah, But now this is what the Lord says, He who created you, Jacob, He who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. You see, the Bible teaches that we are corrupted and helpless in our sin, but it is not using that doctrine or that truth to teach us that we're worthless. Okay, So don't take away from total depravity that you are somehow a disgusting creature that's not worthy of love. You have already been loved since before the foundation of the world, Paul says in Ephesians 1. You've already studied that. God loved you and proved his love by Christ on the cross. Notice here the God of the New Testament and the God of the Old Testament. Right? Jeremiah and Isaiah are right in there with John and Luke. Okay? God has loved us with an everlasting love. So those are two things that total depravity is not. It is not that we are incapable of doing any human good, so don't be confused by that. We can do good, but all of our good is tainted with self-reliance. It isn't that we're valueless. Most importantly, total depravity is not saying that we are worthless. That's not using the truth of total depravity correctly. But thirdly, total depravity also doesn't absolve us of our moral responsibility for sinning. And this is one of the hardest ones to understand in this doctrine or in this truth. When Paul says that we are dead in our sin, in Scripture and in our hearts, (laughs) the response is, then why are we held responsible if we can't do anything? Right? 
Why are we obligated to take action? Or why are we obligated to live a certain way? Which, or why are we obligated to think a certain way? Or why are we obligated in, in taking action in this relationship with God if we are dead in our sin? And this is the deep end of the theological pool that we're in here. So don't be discouraged if you don't perceive this perfectly clearly yet. Just remember what Paul just prayed a few sentences ago. Paul prayed a few sentences ago that the eyes of your heart be enlightened and opened for us to understand this and that we know the mystery of God's will. So this is what total depravity isn't in absolving our moral responsibility. Total depravity is a truth that tells us about the nature of the world that we live in. And it's this. The world is not how God intended it to be. The world is corrupted in every part, even the beautiful places. Just like our good works, even our beautiful good works are corrupted at their heart. We look at nature and we look at the stars and we look at the forests and we look at the rivers and we look at the mountains and we think how beautiful this is. This is a cursed world. And we still see beauty in it, but it's not as beautiful as God intended it. It's not as beautiful as it's going to be remade. Right? This is a cursed and fallen world. And it is not as God intended. It is corrupted in every part. And we also are not how God intended us. We are corrupted in every part. And part of the mystery that Paul wants us to see is that we and the world are being redeemed by God. We, are be, we begin spiritually dead and unable to help ourselves. And like a dead body, we can take no action in and of ourselves. And yet God has taken action to redeem And in the fullness of time, you remember that phrase in the first part of Ephesians, in the fullness of time, meaning we are in the process of something happening, the fullness of time is taking place. God is redeeming us. And in the fullness of time of this happening, we are still free moral agents and accountable. God did not turn away from mankind, but man turned away from God. God has made himself known to us from the beginning, and because he is known, we are responsible when we refuse to acknowledge him. And Romans makes our predicament in this case most clear. Romans 1.20 says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, and so they are without excuse. And so... Total depravity, if you use that truth to try to teach that we are then morally off the hook and not accountable, you're using that truth wrong. Okay, So we have to use this truth or this doctrine of total depravity very carefully that we use it for the right reasons and we don't use it for the wrong reasons. Jesus said that we must repent or we must turn towards God and we don't have this ability in ourselves, but if we find ourselves initiating that action and find ourselves able to turn towards God, we suddenly discover that it is God that has enabled us to do it. And I think any of us here who are Christians today understand that. When you look back on your life and you look at that time when you really started to turn towards God and turn away from the world and turn away from the flesh and turn away from the devil and turn towards God and you think, where did that come from? Where did that ability come from? Was that in me? No, I was bankrupt. I was lost. I hated God for years. And then slowly but surely he turned my heart away from that old life and he turned me towards God. And it was him. He sought me out. It was God's power in me that regenerated me. Paul said in Romans 10, 9 to 10, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And so Paul and Jesus, they say repent. They say confess. Peter says repent. John says repent. 
So we are responsible for our sin and our nature. Even though we are spiritually dead, God makes us alive, or as the King James Version says, quickens. What a great word. He quickens us to be able to confess and believe. So the doctrine of total depravity isn't an excuse for us to absolve ourselves of moral responsibility. That would be using that doctrine incorrectly. The Bible doesn't teach that. It doesn't teach that we're worthless. It doesn't teach that we're incapable of any good. The doctrine of total depravity is a very specific truth that teaches us that every part of our nature is corrupt, that there is no part of us that on its own would want to seek God, that even though parts of us can be good, there's a, there's a corruption of self-reliance, a seed of sin in all part of us, and that leaves us dead spiritually, unable to be saved ourselves, to save ourselves, not unable to be saved. Praise God, not unable to be saved, but un- unable to save ourselves. We have no power, no more power than a dead body, no more power than Lazarus had in the tomb before Jesus came and said, come forth. So the truth of our being totally depraved is not meant to either let us off the hook of our sin on one side, you can talk about Romans 6 there, or 3.8, nor on the other hand is it meant to condemn us as being worthless or without value. If we use the teaching of total depravity to tell ourselves that we are without value, then we're using it wrong. If we use the doctrine of total depravity to let us off the hook of personal responsibility, then we're using the truth wrong. And of course, if you abuse a truth for the wrong reason, it will not seem right. And that is why I think that so many people struggle with total depravity and why so many people have resisted it and have been left confused because this doctrine of total depravity has been misused and has fallen off on one side or the other rather than being used correctly. And the truth of our depravity as taught in Scripture, is meant for one primary purpose, to point us towards the grace of God and cause us to put our hope in nothing else, because there is no hope in our own power or moral strength. That's why this doctrine is so important. It has one clear purpose, to tell us that we have no power in our own morality or strength and that God's grace is entirely towards us to save us. If we say that hope lies in ourselves, then that is a faith tainted with humanism. And it gives us a reason to boast. We get to say something like, of course we are saved. God was obligated to respond to my inherent goodness. Didn't you see me on those Doctors Without Borders commercials? You know, I was just helping all of those poor children in third world countries. Of course God had to save me. And that's humanism. But if we say that hope lies completely in God, then it is God's grace that's on display. And giving up on ourselves, we can finally be rescued. And that's why this doctrine of deadness in sin or total depravity or um, complete inability or uh, radical corruption or whatever words you want to put on it, it's true of what the Bible teaches that its purpose is to leave us powerless and to give God all the glory for rescuing us. You can look at it this way. Did God look down on us in the world and say, all of those humans down there, they're just like a big box of kittens and they're so cute, I can't help myself. I just have to save them because they're so great. No, that's not what happened. Or did God look down and say, you know, I see all those people down there and some of those people are just better than others. Lindsay, she's here, 8.30 for church. (laughs) Right, and God's looking down And he's saying, some of those people are just clearly better than others. I'm going to save those. Is that what God did? No, that doesn't work either. Or a third way. Did he look down and he just said, there are some people that are trying really hard 
I mean, they may, may not be perfect, but they're trying really hard and these other people aren't trying at all. So I'm going to save the people that are trying hard. No. None of those three things work, do they? None of those things line up with any scripture that you can find. God did not look down on the world and say we were just such a great box of kittens that he had to rescue us. He did not look down and say, well, some of them are clearly good and some of them are clearly bad. I'm going to pick those good ones. He didn't look down and say, those guys are trying hard. They're hardly trying. I'm picking the tryhards. Right? None of those are scriptural. And the doctrine of total depravity tells us what is scripture. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. We're all corrupt. Even in our good works are as filthy rags before the Lord. Because there's this sin of corruption that is in us. We are following the world, the flesh, or the devil. But there's good news. Let's close with the good news. The rest of the verses here, 4 to 10. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ. Remember what I said? The purpose of the doctrine of our death and sin and total depravity is, is to show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God's grace at work in us. That's what is happening. That is where our hope lies that God is loving, that God is gracious, that despite the corruption of sin, God reaches in and quickens us and makes us alive in Christ. I love the story that John Stott tells in his commentary on Ephesians. It's a story about one of his professors at Cambridge who was honored on his retirement by the board and faculty of his college with a, a beautiful portrait of himself. And they unveiled the portrait and he came up to the podium and he said when he came up to the podium, he gave words of thanks and appreciation He said, in the future, when people see this painting, they will ask the question, not who is that man, but who painted that portrait? It was an expression of his appreciation for the artistic skill of the portrait maker. He had done such a wonderful job that his work would draw attention to itself. But it's a beautiful picture also of what God has done in us. When we look at a beautiful portrait, if we look at, say, a Vermeer, of the lady standing, we don't ask ourselves, who is that lady? When we see that picture, we think, who is that artist? It's Vermeer, Dutch master. My Dutch friends in the audience. We think, who is that artist? What an amazing job that artist has done. And there's a picture here of what Paul is saying, that we are Christ's workmanship, created for good works. And so when people look at us, we don't want them to say, who is that man? What has he done? Who is that person? When people look at us, they say, what God is that that created that workmanship, that took that person out of the world, that isn't following the flesh, isn't following the devil, isn't following the world, is charting a straight path through all the distraction and all the despair in the world? And they say, not who is that man or who is that woman or what is her name, but what work of grace is in him? Who did that work of grace in her? Who saved that woman? Who saved that man? 
We are the display of God's workmanship in salvation. And, and Pastor Chris is going to talk more about that next week. It's just such an amazing mystery. And so the Apostle Paul has pointed us to our hope. Our hope is in God. He's told us what God has done. He's saved us. He's raised us from the dead. He's caused us to be ascended with Christ Jesus and to sit in heavenly places with Him. And He's done this because of His own love and nothing in us. It's nothing in us. It's His love that He's done this for and for His glory so that His grace will be on display. And so the Apostle Paul has given us something that anchors us in hope even in this fallen and broken world. And until we understand our plight, until we understand that we are totally depraved, until we understand just how sick we are, we will never go to the surgeon to get better. And so that's why this doctrine is important, that we embrace the reality that apart from Christ, we are totally depraved. We are completely incapable. We are radically corrupt. Every true believer at the moment of their conversion has full appreciation for their own sin and for the Savior's grace at the same time. But unless we study and know our own sin and see it for what it is and own up to it, unless those of us who have come to faith in Christ remember that we are apart, that apart from the grace of Christ we are, we are sinful, then we'll never appreciate the magnificence of God's saving grace to us. It's a desperate world and our hearts are desperately wicked. And the prince of the power of the air is at work to continue the corruption. But God's grace is greater than all our sin. May God grant that you know and believe that truth and believe on Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, this doctrine that you put in view here that we call total depravity, um, it's an important one. Your word says again and again that we are dead in our sin and our trespass. And so we have to, we have to get this right. You're not saying we're worthless, but you're not saying we're morally off the hook either. You are saying that your grace is sufficient. You are saying that you loved us with a love since before the foundation of the world and that we can be your workmanship if we confess. So, Father, help us have a true appreciation of who you are and who we are. Help us have the eyes of our hearts enlightened and opened so that we can see the world exactly how it is and we can see ourselves exactly how we are and we can see you exactly in the fullness of your love then you can begin to do a work in us. We can confess. We can repent. We can receive forgiveness. We can receive your love. We can be filled with the fullness of Christ and the full measure of joy. Lord, I pray that for each one of us today. In Christ's name, amen. That's a good way to go into communion. Remembering that we are Christ's workmanship and that Christ gave himself on the cross for us for exactly this purpose. And this communion is for those of us who know the Lord Jesus as our Savior and have experienced that joy. We take this communion to remember what he did on the cross. On the night that he was with his disciples, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is given for you. And likewise, after they had eaten, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the covenant, the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant meaning this is the, this is the new deal. This is the new arrangement. The law is gone. You're not going to measure up by how good you think you can behave. I've come to die. I've come to pay the full price. This is the new deal with God. You have fullness of relationship with him through what I've already accomplished on the cross. Just believe and trust in me. That's what this communion is about. I'll just have my help.